This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Michael Vickers, who served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence under President Barack Obama. They discuss Dr. Vickers' book, By All Means Available, Memoirs of a Life in Intelligence, Special Operations, and Strategy. His time as a Green Beret, counterterrorism operations in Afghanistan, policy leadership at the Defense Department, and much more. Michael Vilkers, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here. Well, you have served multiple roles in the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. You were an Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence in the Obama administration, uh, in the George W. Bush administration, Obama administration. You were the Assistant Secretary of Defense for SOLIC, Special Operations, Low Intensity Conflict. Of course, you served in the CIA and were... Uh, was an Army Special Forces officer during the Cold War, uh, perhaps known most for your role, star role in Charlie Wilson's War, the uh, film from 2006, where uh, you had uh, a big role in the film. And of course, in reality, the book that we'll get to right now uh, tells that story as much of other things that happened in your career. And here I'm referring to By All Means Available, uh, your new book, Memoirs of a Life in Intelligence, Special Operations, and Strategy. Congratulations on the book. And Mike, tell us about why now uh, was the time for you to put out this really fantastic memoir. Well, over the last decade, uh, enough information has been declassified that I could write it. You know, I've spent a lifetime uh, uh, keeping our nation's um, secrets. And there were really three reasons. One, you know, a duty to history. I, I had participated, particularly Afghanistan in the 1980s, in a world-changing event, you know, that helped end the Cold War. And so I felt I had it, the story hadn't been told fully, and I felt I had a duty to history to really document that. The second reason is, you know, the way we conduct secret operations, covert operations, and some special operations uh, is with congressional oversight since the late 1970s, but not by necessity, the American people knowing all the things we do. And so I wanted to share what I could with the American people, the great work that intelligence professionals, special operators, national security strategists really do on their behalf to keep us safe. And then the third reason is I'm increasingly worried about the international environment. And so I wanted to pass on what lessons I could as we enter a new Cold War with China and Russia to future generation of operators and strategists so they can win. Well, that screams throughout the book, the last point in terms of the new Cold War and, and the challenges we're facing and how much it rhymes, almost shockingly so, with, uh, with the world today and, 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 and the world uh, you began your career in. So why don't we start with the, the beginning here. So. Grew up out in, in California, Hollywood, high school recruiter or, or some, yeah. uh, somebody you're in the library and you get interested in the world of special forces uh, and you find yourself uh, as a Green Beret and uh, working by, with and through and really like all over the world, um, all the different you know groups and but a lot in the Western Hemisphere. Um, you know, most people know your story, they know your stories from Afghanistan, but it really uh, didn't begin there. Tell us a little bit about uh, Mike Vickers in the years prior to you taking on this highly consequential role during the Reagan years uh, in terms of what you did in the CIA in Afghanistan. Sure. So as you mentioned, a, uh, 
a high school teacher, uh, when we were sitting in the library, passed a copy of that day's New York Times to me my senior year, and it had a story in it about CIA's paramilitary operations in Laos supporting Hmong tribesmen against the North Vietnamese. And he said, you might be interested in this. And I thought, I don't know why he thought that, but I am. You know, I thought, imagine myself leading secret armies. And uh, and so, you know, I grew up wanting to be a, a quarterback or a pitcher or outfielder in baseball. And when I realized my sports career was coming to an end, that it might be a passion, but it wasn't a talent. Uh, I thought, what am also I going to do with my life? And I thought, I'd like to be a CIA operations officer, but I'd like to start by being a Green Beret. So I enlisted in the Special Forces and luckily made it through training. My parents didn't think I would and were quite nervous about what would happen to me. And uh, I spent the first half of my 10 years in Special Forces in a unit oriented toward World War III uh, if it broke out in Europe. And my team's missions were to go behind Soviet lines and uh, try to halt the Soviet advance, but then work with resistance movements in Eastern Europe, which there weren't a lot of at that point, or maybe they'd rise up as a result of the war. And a lot of training. I was even trained to uh, parachute into Eastern Europe in the event of war with a backpack nuclear weapon, which is, seemed like a good idea at age 23, maybe not so much in later years. <laughs> And then I became an officer and went right back to Special Forces. And as you said, Central America was heating up in the early 1980s. And so I was given command of a, a classified counterterrorism intelligence unit and collected intel. You know, we had our embassy taken in Tehran and we were worried about similar things happening, happening in El Salvador or elsewhere. So it was my responsibility to make sure we were prepared for that. And there were a couple hostage incidents, uh, an airline hijacking and a barricaded building that I had responded to with my team and uh, did a few other things, but then decided the Cold War's main stage. It was time I completed my bachelor's degree. It was time to go to CIA. And so that's what I did in 1983. And that transition from for listeners and viewers who are not within the Beltway or following these issues, the transition from we think of the special forces community and the CAA is not an unnatural path. It's, it's a sort of thing where, which, which, which happens uh, uh, often almost. That's right. I mean, so CIA in covert action has its own special operations and they're populated by special operators, uh, but also people who collect secret human intelligence. Some of them have special operations backgrounds uh, as well. And uh, so it was a pretty, pretty close fit. And I had had a fair amount of clandestine intelligence training and some jobs in the army is in the special forces as well. So it was a pretty easy transition. And, and both those groups don't like to dress in the normal, uh, let's say, uniform of, of their counterparts in Washington or, you know, in, in, in big, big army or big military, huh? Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. And, and, and CIA being on the leading edge of that. That's right. So. You're emerging in this world, and of course, there's a huge change in January 1981. Ronald Reagan is elected president of the United States, comes into office in 1981. He's elected in 1980, and the director of central intelligence is Bill Casey, often referred to as Wild Bill Casey. Yeah. And I want to read to you something from the acknowledgments. Go to the end of the book, um, where you write, I still stand in awe of President Reagan and former director of Central Intelligence Bill Casey for believing that it was possible to drive the Soviets out of Afghanistan, dismantle the Soviet empire, and bring the Cold War 
to an end and for supporting the efforts that turned that vision into reality. And of course, so much of the formative months, years in your professional life were really bringing that vision into reality. But take a minute, uh, Mike Vickers, and share with us why that is almost a profound thing to write. Uh, for, probably for most Americans today, who think about the Cold War from the standpoint of, uh, if they know it at all, is something we won. Uh, the notion that you could bring it to an end was really consequential and cutting against uh, the current of the time. Yeah. So, so let me start with you know my um, first two years of um, President Reagan's term. I was still a Green Beret in Central America, and he helped put in place the strategy with Director Casey and then our military to actually defeat the insurgency in El Salvador and then to put pressure on the Sandinistas where they lost an election in, in 1990. And so, you know, as a foot soldier, that was my first exposure. And then going to CIA, um, three months after I was there, I was sent on the invasion of Grenada as a point man for CIA on that. And that was the first rollback of Soviet power. You know, the consensus up until that point was that the Soviets were really on a roll. They were making gains all over the world and we, we had struggled through the 1970s. So that was an important thing. And then, um, as you mentioned, at the strategic level, you know, many strategists believed, you know, Cold War was of indefinite duration, but it was something to be managed, not one. You know, it was something new for America, a lot of new characteristics, nuclear weapons and indirect conflict and, and you know, ideological clash, et cetera. But Reagan really, you know, he had that famous simple line of my view of the Cold War is simple. We win, they lose. And it was astoundingly profound as you look back at it that, you know, I'm not just going to settle for managing it, though he did manage the end game extraordinarily well, combining diplomacy with force. And that was manifested again in my world when I was the Afghanistan Covert Action Program uh, officer. For the first five years, uh, no one believed that we could win. The goal of the program started under Carter and was continued through Reagan's first term was to just impose costs on the Soviets. And then in a National Security Council review in early 1985 that I participated in, President Reagan changed our strategy to our goal to driving them out by all means available. And I loved it at the time, you know, as a CIA officer and uh, the Reagan doctrine was announced. It wasn't quite called that yet, but in a State of the Union speech in um, February 85, and uh, that became the title of my book uh, all these uh, decades uh, later. And um, Casey was, you know, as Bob Gates says in his memoirs, you know, it took him a while to figure out, Bill Casey, that he didn't come into CIA, you know, to make it better, to manage it be better. He came in to wage war on the Soviet Union. And I think that was exactly the right thing to do and happy to have played a part in it. So I want to get back to NSCD uh, 166 and that, that critical year 1985. And as you mentioned, by all means available and everything you did in Afghanistan. But but let's just go back to a couple other pieces you threw out there, because I think the history here is 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 consequential and and, mm -hmm. and, and uh, useful as we think about the world today. First, Grenada, mm -hmm. because you just shared a moment ago that, and we were talking about this before uh, we began the show, is that it was the first instance of rollback. 
Mm-hmm. Now, again, it's Grenada. This is in mm-hmm. Afghanistan. It certainly right. isn't any, you know, in the in the heart of of uh, the European landmass. But how consequential was that for our military, for this uh, as an agency operative that you were, and for the country writ large to actually tell the Soviets who were aggressively operating in the third world world that is not going to happen on the watch. And you said, you note in your book, Weinberger was iffy about it, but Reagan said, we're going to do this. Give me a sense of what it meant. Sure. So, um, you know, Grenada had had a deteriorating situation for several years. Cubans were building this giant airport and, you know, Marxist government had come to power. Um, But we were mostly watching the problem. And then we had a medical school there with uh, American students and, there was a coup involved in Grenada that put those students at risk. And so a whole plan was essentially put together over a weekend. Hmm. Uh, And I was, you know, staffing um, that for our senior leadership at CIA. And then um, the decision was made to go. And then I was asked to go in uh, with two other, the guy who would become our chief of station and a communicator um, to start setting up the CIA operation and, and go in and support our special operators. And Reagan fame, President Reagan famously said there when he, you know, there was this thing called the Vietnam syndrome, you know, we hadn't really done major military operations and one that we did do the Iran rescue attempt ended in tragedy. And so there was this fear among some of his advisors that this would go badly. All things. Yeah, go the badly. political said, you're, don't do this. You don't know, do right? this. You got a reelection coming up. And he said, my reelection and this are separate. We're going. And, uh, I still didn't know at that point that I was going, you know, it wasn't <laughs> me at the time, but, uh, um, but again, it was a gutsy decision. I've seen a few of those presidential decisions over my years and, uh, uh, you know, President Bush with the surge of forces in Iraq, but then also starting this campaign that ended up really crushing Al-Qaeda the last six months of his presidency. Presidents normally don't do that. And, you know, President Reagan did a, did a host of those things. So, uh, um, it, Grenada was really significant because uh, one, it was the rollback strategically and it was a shot in the arm, but two, because of some of the challenges we had with the joint force, it led to a lot of reforms. Goldwater Nichols that right. really changed the structure of the Department of Defense and then the creation of U.S. Special Operations Command. Right. And I would add in a separate legislation, uh, the position that created the assistant secretary position that I, I was about to in. say, right? Grenada grew out. Uh, you you had the assistant secretary of defense for special operations, yeah. low intensity conflict, the position you would hold that we mentioned at the outset later on in your career. That really, with this story, it all kind of comes back in these yes. circles of sorts. Um well, let's go to the to the heart of 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 your professional life. I mean, obviously consequential in so many ways, uh, but Afghanistan is is really the way the, the book ends of the story. So, perhaps set the scene of your entry into Afghanistan. So many colorful characters here. Um, you do a great job bringing it out. And uh, unfortunately, I had watched that movie from 2006, so I, I had to imagine the characters from the film, you being the exception, because I, I we, we've known each other for some time. Um, but really well done, Charlie Wilson, you know, Casey, uh, you know, the, the, the Mujahideen. Was it something that you had wanted to get into? Because as you mentioned, the program really began uh, with Carter and it had the Reagan push and the strategic shift 
uh, later on. But was that was that kind of in Langley? Was the sort of thing that everybody was trying to get into, or not so much? Uh, not so much because the first five years of the war, it was assumed that um, the, the, as I mentioned, that we, you know the, the goal was just to impose costs and that we couldn't win, and we ceded a lot of strategic control to Pakistan in making strategic decisions. They were the frontline state. And so actually more officers wanted to go to Central America. That was the big surge of the day. Um, and along came Charlie Wilson, who imposed this huge increase, this 300% increase in funding. You know, you could do that in appropriations in those days. You can't quite do it anymore. And it had bipartisan support. And, um, uh, and you know, so I was selected or considered for the job of this new job they were building, Afghanistan Covert Action Program Officer and Chief Paramilitary Operations Advisor. And I thought, what's not to like here? We get to fight the main enemy. If we win here, it's going to have historic consequences. If we win in Central America, it matters, but it's one more move on the chessboard. And we just had this massive increase in funding. And so I was excited to really. And, and but that, again, that's a strategic observation that in hindsight seems people are going to nod their heads and say, of course, of course. Yeah, but it wasn't at the time. Totally not, right? No, and the reason was because one, there was nervousness about this huge increase in money that the program, you know, you'd have management issues and all this other problem that our main effort was Central America, that we couldn't win. So I had to change a lot of things to really turn that into reality. To, but to I, the point, there's one anecdote in the book, someplace in the middle here, when you're talking about Afghanistan, even Casey's like, you know, the, the, the funding's going up and he's starting to vent about this. And, 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 you know, they're like, well, Vickers has got it, you know, and, 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 and I guess that was enough to answer the mail for, for Casey or the senior staff around him to, to give him confidence. But that's a lot of, of risk involved when you're pouring that much money into players that, right. you know, they're not Western, they're not, they're not speaking your same language. Right, right. So, um, you know, early on, as I was doing my assessment of how I wanted to change what I would do with all these new resources, but what the possibilities were, I concluded fairly early, you know, a number of things. We needed lots more surface air missiles and training and intelligence and more ammunition and this and that. And we needed to wrest strategic control from the Pakistanis and get our allies to escalate with us. We had a lot of secret allies. But I came to the conclusion that to do all that, we needed to double our budget again. And so I sent a cable back into CIA headquarters from Islamabad on a trip when I was meeting with Mujahideen commanders and our Pakistani counterparts. And poor director Casey said, what? You know, the budget just went up four times. And this, this who is this guy? He wants to double it again. And that's when some of my colleagues said, hey, he's figured it all out. Just go with it. And Sure enough, then a few months later, Charlie Wilson got us a second round of money and we, you know, achieved that level of funding. And of course, you're your director of central intelligence and your patron in the Congress is not not only supporting you, but double downing or giving you more. Yeah. That generally alleviates some of the concern, right? Because right. what you alluded to at the outset of our conversation is that so much of what happens and your book does a great job of of explaining this in the in the shadows, as, as Gates would would call it. Um, is really this kind of behind closed doors agreement after intelligence reform of the late 1970s between the executive branch, between the really the president and the the, the CIA 
and the intelligence committees in the Congress. And so that's, in that respect, it's, it's, it's sort of flat. Yeah. And what's interesting about it uh, also, maybe compared today a little bit, although I think there are parallels, is, you know, the, the politics were tough then, but but you had conservative Democrats who would support President Reagan on some things and not uh, on others. And you had Republicans who opposed him on things, you know. So sometimes some of our biggest critics of the program were Republican senators and you know, people like um, Charlie Wilson, you know, who was a conservative Democrat, were our biggest supporters. And President Reagan was happy to do deals with anybody who would do deals with him. Oh, yeah. Goldwater was a senior senator from Arizona who at times you know, took the position against the Reagan administration. And, yeah. you know, on the defense side, you know, Sam Nunn was an important backer, right. as well as, you know, uh, Scoop Jackson from Washington. So, yeah, lots of examples Right. I'm, I'm referencing cases that are outside of the world of covert operations, but, but, but reinforces the but, point. But you mentioned Sam Nunn. He he was a big supporter of the program, too. Right, right. Okay. Uh, you know, so, yeah, exactly. It's an uh, uh, interesting political time. So, you know, one of the great stories here is how you engineer. And we'll just do, maybe just give one anecdote of, of getting these weapons <laughs> to the Mujahideen, training them up. You know, through uh, you know, it's was kind of Western Pakistan into the parts of Afghanistan that are relevant. These would all become famous, at least to me and my generation, uh, as the Afghanistan war after 9/11 takes hold. But but you're, I mean, the British, I guess, were doing this before you. But but it was not well known, and 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 you're figuring this all out. And obviously, as you reference where the Pakistan is critical here, talk a little bit about the process of getting whether surface-to-air missiles or something else you know, to, to the hands of the Mujahideen to make an impact in the battlefield. Yeah, so I didn't know it at the time, but it was kind of like running a covert version of FedEx or UPS in the <laughs> sense that, you know, we had ships we had to schedule from China and Egypt and stuff to get there. We had air routes to get uh, sensitive things in, surface-to-air missiles or uh, fancy radios, frequency-hopping radios into so we could get them in the hands of fighters right away. Um, and then... You know, we had to construct a system of warehouses uh, and trucks to move things from the ports they came in at or the airfields to those uh, areas. Um, and then when they went into the smaller warehouses for the Afghan resistance, and then a lot of Toyota trucks and mules. So we, we bought, you know, the 10, mules. I mules love the mules. China, <laughs> you know, and we tried to buy some from Tennessee. They weren't as hardy, unfortunately. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, so it it was quite a logistical enterprise as well as an operational endeavor. And a strain. See, this is a part that I, yeah, under the surface of the book, I was there a moment where you're like, well, this is this is even getting a little bit unwieldy even for me because you're you're really the person whose arms have to kind of wrap around this whole thing. Yeah, no, I mean, I yeah, at times I thought about just how big and how momentous it was, but I was so focused on just trying to get this done in the shortest amount of time that, uh, uh, you know, and so sometimes, you know, had to take, you know, got to know. So the first time we wanted to introduce the British um, sp uh, surface air missile, the blowpipe, British government turned us down. Right. And we kept at it. And then we got six months later, we got Prime Minister Thatcher to agree. And she kind of helped lead the way again for the US Stinger. Um, you know, and so it was a number of cases like that. Pakistanis didn't want to go along with something, but they eventually did. And, uh, uh, you know, you just had to keep at it.
And what were those moments, those metric kind of moments you're like, okay, this is, this is, this is working really well. I mean, was it, you know, the, the taking out the helicopters or I mean, what, 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 where, where did you feel like this was the moment? So there were a series of them. So, um, so one in, in 1985, there were when we first started really putting all this stuff in, you know, increased by a factor of 10 in one year. Um, that summer, um, we uh, there was an ambush. You know, we tried to get resistant groups to work together, and we had given them a lot more heavy weapons, anti-tank weapons, mortars, surface air missiles, training on how to do complex operations, lots of ammo. And they ambushed a Soviet column going from Kabul, the capital of Afghanistan, to Gardez, uh, a, a, a provincial city in the southeast. And it was a 50-mile kill zone. And when I looked at the satellite photography of that, I thought, geez, you know, like when I was in special forces and ranger training and CIA paramilitary training, you know, if an ambush was a few kilometers long, it was a big deal. And this thing just stretched miles. If you remember the highway of death as the Iraqi army was leaving Kuwait, that's sure. what it looked like. And, and then Soviet attack helicopters came in to try to rescue the convoy, and they were driven off for the first time by all the surface-to-air missiles. And so I thought, this is really working. And then we also provided sabotage and demolition kits to the Afghan resistance in large quantities. And a couple months later, they blew up 21 Soviet MiGs on the ground in Western Afghanistan at Shindan Air Base. And all you right. saw on the satellite photography were these burn marks on the runway. And again, I thought, this is working. And then, then later, um, the Afghan resistance blew up uh, the major Soviet ammunition dump in Kabul with a rocket. Uh, we had been providing a lot of rockets to them, surface-to-surface -surface rockets. And then, of course, shot down a lot of helicopters. Interesting. So a proxy war, even with Mujahideen taking sophisticated weaponry, lots of ammunition, defeating a then, right, the superpower. All yep. right. So I, got, I got to take our first excursion from the story and, and, sure. and talk about today. Just I was going to save this for later, but it's like we hear these stories about we shouldn't ratchet up our support for Ukraine. Uh, and, and can't give them the F-16s because it takes too long to train. Can't give them to high Mars because it takes too long to train. We've heard all this. Here you are, Mike Vickers. You're not in government right now when this is all happening, although you were in government at different points when administrations were considering this. Are you just like screaming and pounding wherever you can pound? Because if it works for Mujahideen in Afghanistan, the logic would seem to dictate it's going to work Fill in the blank. All right, I'm making yeah. the argument for you, but but take you no, absolutely. Do the principles are the same, and so you know our support for Ukraine is conventional war rather than a covert action or unconventional. There, you know, there's certainly intelligence aspects, but it involves a lot of the same elements, and getting that scale and speed uh, to overwhelm the enemy is critical. And so, while generally we've done the right thing uh, from a policy perspective of supporting the Ukrainians and and giving them certain weapons. We've done it too slowly and 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 you know kind of dribbled it out incrementally and it's never a good strategy. And if you contrast it with uh, um, Afghanistan in 85, the contrast is pretty stark. And you know things like the F-16, you know, so one, 
they said the same thing about giving them the stinger that they needed too much training. You know, sure. we, we, we trained the Mujahideen in three weeks on it, you yeah. know, and it where normally a U.S. soldier would get 12 and they did quite fine. And the Ukrainians have done really well with the uh, uh, high Mars, the high mobility artillery yeah. rocket system, the Patriot, you know, compressing training times. And I, you know, and even and innovating and innovating as well. I mean, they're not well, just that, using yeah. it. They're innovating. They're making it they're appropriate for their use. Yeah. It, exactly. And, you know, you, they will need the F-16s. Not, not only would it be great if they had them today and other aircraft, but they will need them for deterrence purposes if they win the war. You Absolutely. know, so it's silly to drag this out. Well, a big difference then, and perhaps this is the, the, the moment to turn back to the story, and then we're going to jump uh, in a moment here to 9-11, right? The, the, other, the, the, the bookend, the other bookend. But the difference was NSTD 166, and you write about this, because if the objective is stated in policy, the removal of Soviet forces from Afghanistan, everything follows through. And so yeah. you think about that moment compared to where that program was prior to, or you think about what I just did, you know, taking this excursion to talk about Ukraine policy, the difference is, do you have a stated objective that you're pursuing that's clear? And if the clear is remove, you know, if the objective is to remove, then it allows a Mike Vickers to do what you do, did on the ground. Talk about right, that. And even if you start with the wrong objective, um, you know, you're too cautious and your government, as circumstances change, you want to take advantage of that. So I think your parallel is directly accurate with NSDD 166. That actually started as kind of a management review by the NSC of whether the program was being properly managed, whether we had a corruption problem, again, echoes of Ukraine. And it got turned into, well, what are our objectives and what can we do? And that in short order, it became, hey, we can defeat these guys and it will have big consequences if we do. And so that got enshrined into this then top secret National Security Decision Directive that President Reagan signed. That made possible then the doubling of resources, the additional, the, 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 the British uh, surface air missile system, the U.S. Stinger, all that became more possible because of that policy change. One figure is part of this bookends of your story, you know, Afghanistan in the 80s and then later in your career of, uh, in this century is Bob Gates because he is the chief of staff uh, to the director of central intelligence, Bill Casey. Talk a little bit of Bob Gates, his role. He, he's written about this. Uh, Number, numerous places, places, but most prominently in his memoir, In the Shadows, from the perspective of Mike Vickers then, and then yeah, also Mike Vickers, meet him, and Mike Vickers was, now. Uh, you know, he had yeah. grown up as an analyst, yep. and he spent a lot of time on the National Security Council uh, in the Nixon to Carter years, and then executive assistant to the director and others. But I met him when he was head of analysis, and as we were escalating the White House uh, had to do a thing called a memorandum of notification, which is a big change to a covert action program after NSDD uh, 166. And so I'm carrying this around to the comptroller and everybody else. And uh, the White House put a requirement that this wasn't going to get out of hand and start World War III. And so I had lots of good reasons why I didn't think it would based on Soviet behavior and their limited force structure and their concerns about NATO and China. But I uh, took it to Gates and he said, I read the package, it's good. And he signed it. And I thought, I better get out of there before he changes his mind. <laughs> and uh, 
I teased him about that years later, you know, like, geez, you know, like pretty gutsy decision to say, not going to start World War III, just a little bit of weight on your shoulders there. And he just laughed. But, and, and you're right. I mean, I'm pleased you emphasize that because so much we go back to today. They're worried about escalation. They're worried right. about the war in Ukraine, you know, bleeding right. out into NATO countries or right, right. And so, you know, there's this, there's this concept I use in the book, escalation dominance, which is usually applied in the nuclear world, but it applies to conventional things and at the tactical level, not just sure, the strategic. Sure. So drone campaign, you want to put your enemy in a position where they can't respond. And it's the same, you know, there's very prudent escalation. And if you don't do it, you won't win. And then there's, you know, maybe reckless, but you, but it, you can't just rule it all out because you're afraid of things. You know, we wouldn't have won World War II had we not mobilized. You know, that's a form of big escalation. Let's fast forward. So you have this uh, amazing, you know, career in the agency, work on this, the most consequential covert program ever. Yes. Obviously drives, uh, uh, the Soviet Union to the point where they have to give up and contributes in a significant fashion to the end of the Cold War. Job done, end of history. Let's go on. You can, you know, build a, a normal life. And there you are. Prior to 9-11, working in a think tank in, in D.C., a highly consequential, impactful think tank. And that's Perhaps where we well first known. met, I think. Correct. And 9-11 happens, and you write the following. I felt rage at Al-Qaeda, who I knew was almost certainly behind the attacks. So this is the moment, right? People don't know this. Certainly, Al-Qaeda is not known to Americans like, like it was after 9-11. I was also furious at myself for under, underestimating the threat that group posed. So take that line and, and, and unpack it for us, Mike, because if there was anybody who knew kind of the, the, the threat of that group or who that group was, it was Mike Vickers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, interesting um, question. So I had a lot of experience in counterterrorism, operational experience, and then more as a policymaker. But the, the terrorism of the 1980s were short duration events, you know, they could be lethal. I mean, you could execute hostages, assassinate people, kidnap them, and then uh, assassinate them. But it wasn't a strategic war in the sense that religious terrorism became in the 90s. And bin Laden and uh, other al-Qaeda le leaders had gone to Afghanistan in the 1980s, but they weren't, they, they were voyeurs. They they were helping facilitate things in the Pakistan border region. Um, they weren't really engaged in big combat. And so we didn't pay a lot of attention to them. You know, we knew about some of them, but that was it. So I had left government after the Cold War to go to graduate school, first an MBA and then a PhD. And, you know, I still had a lot of colleagues who were working the Al Qaeda problem as it evolved between, you know, first World Trade Center bombing and then 9-11. Sure. And I have to say, you know, even when we had the embassy bombings, I thought, well, this is like Beirut. It's horrible. And we should have tried to do more to prevent this. And we ought to retaliate. And the cruise missile strike we did on Afghanistan wasn't enough. But I still saw it through this lens of the Cold War and terrorism as it was with the Palestinians and other groups, you know, before 
um, they made peace. And I didn't appreciate the significance of, you know, Al-Qaeda's ambitions may have been too big that they wanted to take over the world, but it's vastly different than what other terrorist groups did. And that was clear to me right at 9-11, and it wasn't before that. And that's a super interesting distinction, which is absolutely reflecting the way the U.S. government responded after 9-11. I think here, prior to 9-11, I'd say most strategists and policymakers knew terrorism was a challenge, but it was one manifestation of geopolitics and how states right. interact. After 9-11, it became the non-state actor, the, the, this ungoverned spaces, groups that aren't bound by or think in terms of sovereignty border states, and it needed to be treated in its own fashion. And we did, that, I think, a lot of good reasons why we we adjusted, and I think it, it it's a reason why Al Qaeda hasn't wasn't successful in attacking the homeland again. And then that's um, right. But at the same time, you know, it, it perhaps got our eye off the ball of some of the of, of the state actors for a period of time, and, and it's come at a cost as well, which maybe maybe we'll get into. Um, so, Mike, at, at, you obviously get back into the fight. And um, I remember when I was a staffer in the Armed Services Committee, you were kind enough to spend time with me and colleagues helping us understand what was going on. And it was, it was years after 9-11, but, but still at the heart of the fight in Afghanistan and Iraq. But one thing that stands out to me, you I don't, probably you don't recall this, but uh, you were kind enough to spend some time with me and a colleague for lunch. And I said, oh, so what are you up to? And this was actually, you had been in the, still in a think tank and you said, I'm, uh, I just got back from a meeting on nanotechnology. And this is before anybody knew what nanotechnology or certainly people weren't talking about it. But it, it struck me at the moment that you're doing all this stuff, you have all this operational experience, but he's also got this kind of technologist side to him. I wanna, uh, it's relevant both in terms of how we, we dealt with Al-Qaeda, but also the new Cold War, you call it. Talk about technology and all of this and its, its place. Sure. So. I think one of the ways the new Cold War with China and Russia, and China in particular, uh, is different from the Soviet-American uh, Cold War is the role of emerging technologies that change industry and the economy and society, as well as national security affairs, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, synthetic biology. And so, you know, when I left CIA at the end of the Cold War, I thought uh, I'm done with terrorism and counterterrorism. I'm done with intelligence. I'm done with Afghanistan. I'm done with covert action, done with Russia. Or, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I thought the next big thing was the rise of China. And so I got that right in the early 90s, got everything else wrong. You know? <laughs> I had to deal with all that after 9 You're just ahead of your time. And that's what you yeah. are. So, uh, so from the 90s on, really, and through some of my positions in the, in the Department of Defense at a very senior level, um, I, I worried about uh, our military position and deterring China, you know, uh, starting a new bomber program, expanding our submarine force, space, cyber capabilities, et cetera, but also these emerging technologies that really could be revolutionary. And I came to see that new tech arms race is the central competition of this new Cold War that we've got to win. Before we jump to this new tech arms race, it was fascinating and, and, and important. I think that's a, uh, I could perhaps the unexpected part of the book uh, for me. Not that yeah. I didn't think you would weigh in on it. It just, it got serious treatment in the book. And I was yeah. 
the rest of it was kind of, I expected the story of Afghanistan right. and, and the like. Right. Uh, but as you're in these positions in the Department of Defense and we're trying to defeat Al-Qaeda, we got close and didn't do it, got close and didn't do it, we get Bin Laden, but they're still there. And then it it, it splits off in all these ways. Today, we, we, know, we, we still have ISIS. And, and, and now with Biden administration, uh, we're out of Afghanistan. Tragic as that as it was, there's still a counterterrorism threat. Just kind of close that piece of the discussion with your sensibility right now. Will we yeah. be back? Will Mike Vickers have a round three dealing with Afghanistan? Or or jihadi terrorism? Well, Fair I, enough. Expand I, it might to not that. be Mike Vickers, but I hope not. But we will if we take our eye off the ball. And yes, we need to shift to China and Russia and Russia, Ukraine. Um, but you can't ignore the Middle East. You know, if the if the Middle East and jihadi terrorism were like Las Vegas, that what happened there stayed there, it would be that manageable problem like the right. Cold War. It's not. That's the big lesson. And so we learned some painful lessons uh, with the big attacks on 9-11 and adapted our strategy accordingly. Uh, and consequently, we were able to largely defeat al-Qaeda, certainly take apart most of, most of it, and then largely defeat ISIS, but they haven't gone away. The ideology is still there. The ungoverned spaces are there. And it only takes an economy of force effort, um, you know, relationships with partners in the region, uh, the surveillance aircraft that can also strike uh, that we developed right around 9-11 to deal with that problem. Um, and, uh, you know, and so you don't want to just completely ignore that and go all in on China or you'll regret it. You'll, you know, you'll have but, but, but that point, you know, it, it, to maybe a, a listener, they would think, okay, that's characterizing what we would do. Like, of course we wouldn't just leave the middle East, right. And, and focus on China. But in fact, that is the debate right now. I mean, there is a view uh, right. which actually finds itself in our national security strategy and defense strategy of both the Trump administration and the Biden administration where we need to absorb risk is the euphemism right? Right. for doing what you're saying we can't do. Certainly if it's applied in, 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 in a fashion that is, you know, not thought through and, and, and nuanced. Right. Yeah. No, I, I thought the, you know, our withdrawal from Afghanistan, not only was it badly conducted, but I think strategically it was a big mistake. You know, yeah. we, we had transitioned security responsibility to the Afghans and what they needed was our continued support and air power and desperation if we needed it. They didn't need US combat forces anymore or anything like that. They needed a few advisors. And so we traded a stalemate. I mean, we couldn't eliminate, we could eliminate Al Qaeda sanctuary in Pakistan. We couldn't eliminate the Taliban because the Pakistanis were on different sides of that but we could certainly keep the Taliban from ever winning. And we just ceded it to them and let them win. And so China, Russia, and global jihadists all looked at that like this big defeat for the United States. You know, not just we're leaving this forever war that nobody cares about. I think it uh, contributed to Putin deciding he could go into Ukraine among other things. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think it was a big mistake. Yeah, and it's I mean, not, it doesn't mean we need big Iraq wars or Afghanistan wars or anything else. We just need sensible counterterrorism policy. No, no doubt. And, and uh, I, I see it the way you do drawing the line between geopolitical events and 
and the way Xi has approached uh, the United States and Putin uh, looked at Ukraine through what happened in in Afghanistan. I mean, you read it in your book. You talk about a Bagram. I mean, I, just for for Mike Vickers, the person who you know, as you were talking about earlier, had to figure out the logistics of getting stuff into Afghanistan in a in a covert you know program, and then we have the stuff in this amazing base, huge billions of dollars worth of equipment and platforms and the like. And we give it away to the adversary. Right, right. And you know, my history with Bagram Air Base goes back to CIA days when I was helping the Afghan resistance shell Soviet aircraft there, and then later using it for our own purposes against Al Qaeda and the Taliban. And and, I'm just looking at yeah. the book here. I was flipping through the index. Of course, we're with Mike Vickers, author of By All Means Available, Memoirs of a Life Intelligence, Special Operations and Strategy. But I was just curious, I'm like, you know, came up throughout the book how many times, and what struck me, Mike, I don't know if, <laughs> Bagram Airbrace is mentioned, I would say half a dozen times, perhaps more, just looking at it, but the, from the beginning to the end. Right. It's, and throughout. Right. It's, uh, I don't know if you ever thought about your memoir. <laughs> Through the I didn't, but it's with the airbase. You know, it's a certain, you know, one of the things I, I, I start the book with a little anecdote about a quarter century apart, I'm on the same hill in two yes. different wars. And, you know, a small remote part of the earth that's caused a lot of trouble for us over the past. Well, it's like you say, we ignored our own, our own peril. Let, let's move to the new Cold War and then we'll close out uh, a All great right. discussion. So, so, so pleased to have you on the show, Mike, but we were talking about technology, intelligence community, as well as, you know, dealing with China and Russia in this new cold war. You have a really fascinating observation. I want to read to you and ask you to, to unpack in the competition, new cold war, you, you write at the operational level, ubiquitous technical surveillance technologies, which combine technical surveillance, including digital dust, and DNA surveillance with artificial intelligence will make clandestine operations more challenging to conduct. And I, the end of that sentence to me seemed overly diplomatic. I would have just, after those few examples you give, impossible. How do you do anything clandestine anymore in terms of human operations, human, with, with all the technology out there? I mean, if, if you, you know, came out of your, what I hope is more relaxing, enjoyable, uh, crazy life and your director of central intelligence, this has got to be uh, a real tough nut to crack. It is. And it, it has strategic as well as the operational implications. So, you know, during the Cold War, we learned how we could operate in Moscow under the nose of the KGB so we could handle important Soviet agents. And there it was physical surveillance and right. other things that, you know, you had 3000 people they would deploy. And, you know, if you made a turn in a car that they couldn't see, they'd let people get out and see if you made any chalk marks and all that. Well, now the problem is Beijing's the really uh, challenge, not only because of China's role in the system, but because of the cameras and everything else they've put up in the, the surveillance state. It's a surveillance state. Exactly right. And so learning how to operate in that environment. And that's the ubiquitous technical surveillance part. You know, and so you, without going into great detail, um, 
you need countermeasures of various parts. It becomes more technologically intensive to be able to operate, but it's not impossible. And it's a problem we've got to solve because some intelligence, you're only going to get that way. But our officers will have to be far more tech savvy than they've been in the past. Now, you know, young kids grow up with social media and all this, but it's really awareness, not just of your physical surroundings, but your technical surroundings uh, and, and multidimensional technical surroundings, including things like DNA. You know that we just don't even think about, but um, your you know, hair. Now, what you can skin. do with DNA, you leave stuff behind all the time, wherever you know, for a variety of uh, reasons, wherever you go. And so, we need to adapt to that world, just as we adapted to new technologies in the past. The strategic implication is that, you know, in the Cold War, the Soviets and the Chinese would for a while the chinese at least would back communist parties with the aim of trying to overthrow the government and you know uh, come to power chinese don't do that anymore you know they back authoritarian states they say we want to do business with you we're autocratic capitalists they may not use that exact word but we're happy to have you stay in power you know we have the same thing in fact here's some technology we'll give you surveillance state so if you contrast that with the cold war where you know for time to time, we back some sure. authoritarian governments who are anti-communist. We're on a different side of that competition now with this. And China has a lot of assets that the Soviets didn't have. And we have to think about how we can win that too, or we'll lose a lot of influence. In yeah. That. Jared Cohen, I don't know if you know Jared, he wrote yeah. a piece recently about you know, geopolitical swing states and really captures, aligns with, with your argument there. There are, there are countries, some democratic, some not, but are not going to make their choice between the United States and China on the basis of values alone. Right. And and so our our strategic approach needs to kind of take that into account and and kind of right. approach you know, it. Values always have to be a part of American foreign policy, you know, with interests as well. But you just have to recognize these geopolitical realities and figure out how you're going to solve them. Before we go to our lightning round and, and wrap up this discussion, um, fantastic job on, on your memoir, uh, by all means available will be available anywhere you can get a book uh, here shortly. Um, talk about China, new Cold War. Give us your sense of how this should shake out. Um, and it, it almost impossible question, so I ask you to do it quickly, right? But yeah. but really, you acknowledge, you note multiple times in the book how you know, China's economy will surpass the United States. It's it's a it's a challenge because of the economic side that's far different and more complex uh, than the Soviet Union, not only because of their economic power, but because they're a major trading partner, right? So it's, it's, it's very, very different. But when you think about it, and, and you're a person who's a strategist, you got to think about end state. How do you think about the end state of this whole, the whole new Cold War? Well, like George Kennan, you know, where, you know, he thought, okay, if we contain them and frustrate the Soviets enough, they'll eventually mellow in some way, or maybe the regime will change. And that may be the end state with China. I don't know. Um, what I do believe is that this tech arms race in, in artificial intelligence and quantum computing and SynBio and others uh, is something we really have to win. Uh, you know, if we're going to stay ahead, you know, unless the Chinese have economic troubles or uh, of their own, um, because that will keep us economically competitive. And so I write in the book about five things I think we need to do. First and foremost is getting our domestic bases of power in order, you know, in terms of uh, restoring at least enough national unity to wage a 
protracted competition like this uh, to deal with the disruptive effects of some of these technologies, but then really to win this economic and technological competition. Out of that will come, you know, and then there's national security implications for intelligence, for defense, in bolstering our deterrence, but they're not enough to win. You know, if we don't do the other things, we won't win a Cold War. Um, you know, because if you deter the conflict, you still got to win the peacetime competition. And, and this economic and technological competition, as well as expanding military and intelligence power, translates into global influence. So in that sense, it's similar. It's a global competition. And it's a competition of systems. You know, our, this time it might be democratic capitalism against autocratic capitalism, but it's still a competition of two different views of how to govern yourself. Great insights, Mike Vickers. Let's turn to our lightning round. Here's where we asked your favorite Reagan book, your favorite Reagan speech. Share with us your favorite Reagan quote. Give us all one or, or two. What do you got? So I'll say tongue in cheek. I love the book, but it's my least favorite in one way. And that is Reagan's love letters to Nancy. You know, like <laughs> every day he was in the White House, he wrote a love letter. You know, and it's not that he, had, he didn't have a few other things on his mind. And I think... Any other husband in the world just has to look at that and think, I'm doomed. You know, I just I can't my, my, my wife reads this book, you know, <laughs> the bar funny. is just raised too high, but that's tongue in cheek. Um, as far as a favorite book, you know, I hope my book contributes to some of President Reagan's significant uh, triumphs. But books about him, I would say Will Imboden's recent book about the peacemaker, yeah. I think is really good on Reagan foreign policy and uh, and how he managed. And again, we don't have time now, but uh, you know how he managed diplomacy at the end of the Cold War with still securing a victory for the United States through not giving up on force is very rare in American politics. You know, usually you do one or the other, and uh, he he was just a master at it. Um, and then favorite speech, I have to say, you know, when what became the Reagan doctrine got announced that, you know, uh, we have to keep faith with these people resisting Soviet aggression. Uh, you know, that was February 1985. So that's that's my favorite quote or speech. And then I'm also partial to the evil empire and the tear down this wall one too. just, you know, Cold War hawk that I am. But well, the uh, Reagan doctrine one probably is my favorite. Those are all great, and, and certainly here at the Reagan Institute, ones we, we, we like to hear. Uh, Mike Vickers, congratulations on your new book, By All Means Available, <clears throat> Memoirs of a Life in Intelligence, Special Operations and Strategy, and wish you success for the book, and hope to have you back on the show. Thank you, Roger. My pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.